the opportunity that's ours to assemble as we are this evening is a blessing as it always is. For after all, the greatest thing that can be said about us is that we're Christians and that we strive to acceptably and pleasingly serve our Heavenly Father. It is good to see each and every one here this evening, and we're blessed in health, but even more than that, we're blessed spiritually to be able to have our sins washed away and to come in for the freedom of the hour and open the Word of God and to be convinced of what God would have us to do and be. We're going to talk tonight about some Bible mathematics. It's not the case that we'll have a mathematics lecture, of course, but our interest is the Word of God. And this opening slide will be one that merely sets the idea before us that we will develop in a rather greater amount of detail in just a moment. Isn't it interesting how that every branch of knowledge, in one way or another, is at least encouraged upon us to understand it properly using the Bible? That's true of geography. That's true of math. That's true of science. That's true of English. You name it. And yet tonight, as we come to think somewhat about math, it may not have been your favorite subject in school, but I suppose that will really not be a deterrent this evening because we're going to allow the Bible to remind us of some basic, some fundamental truths that relate to mathematics. The opening comment on that slide was this. It's interesting, Denise and I have noticed it certainly in regard to our, our granddaughter Hallie. Now, she already knows numbers, and she's only about two and a half. She knows the number one. She can, in fact, carefully appreciate numbers like two and three, and even many others as well. And yet, as she grows a little older, she soon will learn how to add numbers together, and she soon will learn about subtraction. And perhaps a few years after that, she'll come to master multiplication and division. And as she matures and advances, she soon will learn a lot of other concepts related to mathematics. It occurred to me in regard to this lesson, though, that there are some basic truths about math that are pretty fundamental to our right standing before God. And so tonight, we're going to look at a few of those principles. And as we develop them, we're going to begin like this. More or less, just a very brief reminder of how often, in some ways, God makes reference to numbers. Numbers come to be a rather basic part of our appreciation of knowledge. And I would submit to you that numbers occupy a very special place in the full understanding of knowledge. For one reason, like this. We are very accustomed in mathematics that there is a right and there's a wrong. 2 plus 3 is not 6. It doesn't matter who tells you that it is. It doesn't matter how often they may claim that it is. It is not. And one learns then in mathematics to appreciate rightness and wrongness. There is not a subjectivity to mathematics. And therefore, once one appreciates that and begins to apply it, you realize in any arena of truth that will always be the case. And so it is because the Bible is truth, John 17, 17. And therefore, there are things that are wrong and there are things that are right. And it's that way because the authority says so. And therefore, look at some of the usages found in the Word of God as it relates to numbers. And may I be quick to say, I just selected a very small sampling. For example, the number one. What a vital and critical place that number occupies in the panorama of God's revelation of truth. 
I've asked you to notice just a very brief consideration of a few of these verses. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, even in the Old Testament, they were to know very carefully there's one God and only one. In fact, they were to embed that in the thinking of their children. But not only that Deuteronomy 6 passage. In Psalm 27, 4, as far as the movement through life, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. Do you and I have a central priority? One thing that we desire more than anything else? David, in his wisdom, asserted that you and I should also have that same attribute or character. Not only that in the number one, John 17, verses 30 and 31 I would in fact point out that that set of verses as well as those that preceded it had spoken about the earnestness of the Master's prayer. I pray, Father, that just as you and I are one, that all believers on me will also be one in us. The oneness, the unity of all of those who claim to follow the Master. Maybe one final consideration, that well-known text in Ephesians 4 that points out there is one church, There is one hope. There is one spirit. There's also one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And there's one God. And so, as you and I understand the number one, those are just a small sampling of places that one carries great truth. What about the number seven? A special number to be sure, because so many things in the Bible are presented to us using the number seven. We know that our God in creation created for six days and then rested on one, making a total of seven. And today, our week is based upon that event. Mankind didn't dream up the reality of what we call the week. It was embedded from the very character of what began in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and it has been the framework of the allotment of human endeavor ever since. The week... Consider this one with me. In Proverbs chapter 6, we learn there's seven things that God hates. Seven of them. Now we know from other passages in the Bible that we can talk about things abominable to Him. But isn't it interesting how the inspired writer made that very quick and brief listing of seven things that God hates. We would do well to reflect on them and to make certain we're not guilty of any of them. One last thing about the number seven. How often we remember in the book of Revelation that one last time, as if one final understanding is presented to us, the curtain as it presents the nature of the number seven, we read about seven churches in Asia. We read about seven golden vials later in the book, and we read many other occurrences of the number seven. Suffice it to say, God has chosen in His infinite wisdom to present everlasting truth using numbers, and in that case, the number seven. The number ten. We know there were ten commandments. Ten words, if you please, and the ancient Hebrews cast a strong spotlight on the nature of those ten words. We can find places in the New Testament where there are not ten lepers with which the Lord had dealings in Luke 17. Was the number 10 not referenced in in Revelation 13 as it related to the number of horns on one of those beasts? All of that highlights, does it not, that God has chosen on occasion to use numbers to represent things that are inviolable, truths that are to be understood. 
Following the number 10, I call to your attention the number 40. How often does that number occur in the Bible? In the days of Noah, of course, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. David was the king of Israel for 40 years. Saul was king for 40 years. Solomon was king for 40 years. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. On and on we could go. A few of the judges, you see, ruled 40 years. And by now we appreciate those numbers were numbers that carried with it incidents, issues related to truth. I only ask you to notice perhaps two more. There is a number, maybe you have had conversation with individuals who have brought to mention the number 144,000. Well, that number is found in the Word of God. In fact, it's found twice, at least in the context that they are mentioning. It's once in Revelation 7, it's once in Revelation 14, and in those places it does not mean what they say that it does, but it does carry important things that you and I can be comforted with as we make use of that number. One last number on that slide. In light of those, as I have mentioned them, you no doubt can think of many others. I would just mention, would mention the number 12. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 initially selected apostles. And there were 12 foundations to the golden city in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. I say all of that to say that the Bible, of course, contains truth. But sometimes that truth is housed in the language of math, numbers. Let's devote the rest of our time then tonight to the employment of numbers as it relates to the operations that might take place concerning them. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the first operations that our youngsters learn and that you and I use is addition. The understanding that goes with summing one number with another one to arrive at a result. And yet the Bible on occasion will make reference to addition. I wonder what some of those contexts are and what might be some things that can be very lasting and memorably useful to us. In 2 Peter 1 verses 5 to 7, might you and I never forget that we're going to have to be masters of addition if we're going to please God and go to heaven. And I don't mean with relation to just adding numbers. That text reads like this, Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to, bro to brotherly kindness charity. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. You and I this could see it like this. To go to heaven we must appreciate faith plus virtue, plus knowledge, plus temperance, plus godliness, plus brotherly kindness, plus love. And thus, you see, we have to be those who make a practice of addition. And thus, a rather pertinent question, are you and I then adding? Are we, in fact, making certain to do what is known as addition? For we know that means to then implement, to put into place that which was not the case before or at least not as fully appreciated. Not only is addition mentioned there. Look at this text in Acts 2.47. When it comes to the very church of which you and I are a part, weren't 
the inspired writers led to write this, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. There we notice that Jesus is the one doing the addition, at least when it comes to that activity. When an individual obeys the gospel, it's the master who adds. Isn't that a lovely thought? Whenever that activity takes place, to appreciate then that the number constitutive of the church, it's been added to because the Lord added it. That statement of addition takes you to the next one. Some principles that might be worthy of observation. One of which, Psalm 119, verse 160. When it comes to the Word of God, reflect with me upon that truth. Stating there about the Word of God, we notice that the sum, S-U-M, not S-O-M-E, but the sum of thy word is truth, meaning that one must add, rightly dividing it and putting it into place, every part and every whit. But the sum of it is truth. The basic thought then of that nature of addition you and I know how often we've heard that we can't take a text from what is its context. We must add it to everything that God has said and draw the conclusions that He allows us to draw. No wonder then in terms of addition, only one final thought. There are occasions in which the thought of addition does not work in our favor. You probably would have guessed what that is in Isaiah 30 verse number 1. You see, so far it seems as though the idea of addition has been often a good thing, adding faith to virtue and things like that, or the Lord adding to the church. But in Isaiah 30 verse 1, there is a rather sad description of the people of that day who they added sin to sin. Now that's a terrible thing, isn't it? To choose to add sin to sin, one sin isn't enough. Even a half dozen's not enough. They were so steeped in rebellion and so steeped in waywardness with respect to God, they were happy to add sin to sin. Now, we don't want to be good at that kind of addition, do we? Let's close that thought about addition with one final observation having to do with the Bible itself. God has specifically give us, given us a command not to add in certain places. Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 Add thou not unto His Word. In other words, when it came to the Word of God that was revealed to the ancient Hebrews, they were never ever to add anything to it. They were to take it as it was, to take it as it had been revealed. And may I be quick to say that that isn't the only place that that principle is so readily found. In Proverbs 30, verse number 6, Add thou not unto His Word. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and following, one last thing about those who would have the nerve to add to the Word of God, to that person will be added the plagues written in this book. Let's close our thought of addition then by reminding ourselves as often as the thought perhaps is good, there are places where not to do any addition. What about subtraction? I've asked you to consider some thoughts about the bottom of that slide. The first thing maybe worthy of note is this. Rather than using the word subtract, there are many equivalent wordings that the Bible will employ that carry the idea of subtraction. And I've listed some of them for you. Words such as to put away, 
to lay aside, to lay apart, to put off. For example, as you think about usages of where, say, the phrase put off, well, you know that here's an activity or here is a particular matter that is thus to be taken out of one's life, to be subtracted. As you and I look at some of these verses, we'll be reminded of the Bible's usage of that idea. For example, in Ephesians 4.31, there's a listing of six things which we are told to lay these aside, meaning that those who are guilty of these things and those who in fact participate in them, you need to stop. You need to subtract them from the course and the reality of life. And some of the elements in that list are things like malice, kinds of envy, things related to other activities which God would not have us to be doing. So if we're guilty of that, we need to do some subtraction to subtract them out of life. But not only a passage like that one. In 1 Peter 2 verse 1, laying aside these things that Peter quickly mentions, we're to desire the sincere milk of the Word, but what are we to lay aside? Evil speakings and envies. You see, these things promote a behavior. They promote a conduct which is not in keeping of soundness of life and soundness of heart. As you and I contemplate laying those aside, how strongly did James word it in James 1.21? Laying aside all filthiness, and superfluity of naughtiness. Now, maybe you and I have often wondered, maybe we're aware of what naughtiness is, but what is this superfluity of naughtiness? Well, no wonder that context will quickly inform us this givenness to, this overflowing in character of what is not appropriate. You see, we too need to be those masters of subtraction if things like this are in our life. Let's journey forward on that slide. I've asked you to notice in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Because in relation to subtraction, again, there are occasions in which we are told not to subtract. You probably are aware of what it is with respect to the Word of God. Just as surely as the ancient Hebrews were told not to add to it, they were told to never, ever subtract anything from it. Isn't that a surprising reminder? They who had been given the Word of God, and they who again on Mount Sinai it had been bequeathed to them, and they were reminded, they were told never to subtract anything from it. Mankind has tried throughout the ages, particularly problematic passages that people haven't liked. They've tried to, to exorcise it from the Bible, to remove it from the Word of God, Somewhat reminiscent of the scene in Jeremiah 36, isn't it? When Jeremiah's statements of prophecy were read before the king, he took his penknife and cut it into shreds and threw it into the fire, thinking that he was no longer amenable to it. When, of course, God commissioned Jeremiah to write the thing again and even added some to it, you see, that very same message that the king maybe had thought he had done away with was still the Word of God. And people today can cut pages out of the Bible. They can cut verses out of it, but it doesn't change the fact that it's in there. And it doesn't change the fact they're going to have to give an answer for it. 
No wonder in regard to the Bible, that same principle is found other places, not just in Deuteronomy 12. In Revelation twenty-two nineteen, there to those that would subtract from the Word of God, it is said to them and of them that their name will be subtracted from the book of life, taken out of it. Oh, what a sore result that indeed is. To this point, we've looked at addition and subtraction. No doubt we might wonder about multiplication and division, and I've reserved them for the next slide. Multiplication. Does the Bible talk about multiplication? Indeed it does. A number of times that word multiply is found, and let's just look at a few of them. When it's employed, it would seem that it is a reference to a very rapid growth in some particular reality. Sometimes it's growth that's almost explosive in its nature. And it is with that regard. And in that way, we find passages like these. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 7 and following, we find a record about a group of people. They had journeyed into Egypt with only a, a little over 70 of them. And as they came we find that word quickly mentions that they grew. They didn't just grow. It says they multiplied and grew. They multiplied exceedingly. And you and I remember that after only a couple of hundred years, their number had exploded to be into the millions. Now, upon a reflection of that, we notice that that happened because God was with them. That happened because He, in fact, blessed them despite the fact they were in some of that time were under Egyptian difficulties. They were made to serve hard bondage. They nonetheless grew because God was with them. But the word multiplied is used with respect to that growth. Look at another consideration of that same idea. In Deuteronomy 1 verse 10, as Moses would reflect upon that growth, he used that word again, they multiplied. Now you and I know that to multiply involves typically far greater ascension in number than just addition. One last thing in Acts 6 verse 7, the lesson text that was read in our hearing tonight. As Brother John read that for us, that text again reads, "...and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied." Let's pause right there. This, of course, was rather early in the age of the church. And yet, in Jerusalem, it says the number of the disciples multiplied. They were expounding by leaps and bounds. As those first century Christians were given to the truth of the Word of God, and they proclaimed it, you'll notice the result thereof was an explosive growth in the number of the disciples. At this point, might we just simply say, in Acts chapter 2, we remember about 3,000 responded to the gospel. By the time we arrive at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, that number had grown to 5,000. And by the time we reach here, the number was far greater than that. Fair to say, isn't it, that that growth is described here by the word multiplied. Looking next on that slide, you'll notice this is another instance in which there are sometimes that it's used in a variety of ways. As in Isaiah 59, verse number 12. Sadly, in fact, almost tragically, there it is said of the ancient Hebrews that they had multiplied their sins. 
They had grown so rapidly in their sinful character, in their sinful behavior. God still loved them, of course. But they were headed to captivity at that point due to the fact that their sins had multiplied that way. Sometimes today, aren't you and I mindful of the fact that sin can still multiply? And the devil wants it that way. You soon find yourself participating in something, and it isn't long before your mind races to activities that are in that same category. And it often doesn't take long before sin has multiplied. One last thing about that particular issue takes us to Ezekiel 16. There it had multiplied to the point where God through Ezekiel challenged the people because here's why you're in captivity. They found themselves in bondage beside the river Kibar because their sins had multiplied and that their iniquities had multiplied. Oh, how wise we ought to be to not permit that kind of multiplication. One final thought about the multiplication will take us to some statements in the book of Acts about the description of the early church. We've already hinted at it in Acts 6 verse 7, but isn't it interesting how often the writer of Acts points it out to us? In Acts 12, 24, later in Acts 19, mentioned along the way in Acts 16, it will say that there was multiplication. The number of the disciples multiplied. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could be a part of that kind of activity today? We are excited to sponsor our missionaries who labor in places and you and I live faithfully to the Lord in the effort that we too might bring those souls to Christ. Multiplication. What about division? The bottom of that slide, you can already see where we're going to be discussing division in relation to the Word of God. It too is found in passages like these. It is often utilized with a reference to that which separates, that which has categorized and drawn asunder that which once was together. We understand the word being used that way. Quite often we employ it in exactly that same fashion. In 2 Timothy 2.15, with regard to the Word of God, what is it demanded of us? Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, doing what? Rightly dividing. In that context, we thus are demanded that we properly appreciate, put into context, and apply correctly that which the Word of God teaches. We have to be masters at division if we're going to please God when it comes to His Word. Not only in that context... Aren't we easily able to remember that God, in fact, gave commandment as it related to a division concerning the ancient tabernacle? There was to be a veil that divided the holy place from the most holy place, and that was by command of heaven. Thus, the matter of division there, separation of those two rooms, if you please, that was a part of what was the will of God. May I again say, it is His will that we rightly divide His Word. In fact, we do great injustice. Just like the warning of 2 Corinthians 7 verses 1 and 2, to those who fail to rightly divide it, they in fact will doom themselves and those whom they teach. With regard to division, you can also see on that slide that the application has an interesting understanding as concerning the even creation.
God did not create everything on day one. Rather, the text says He divided the day from the night on day one, and that division, you see, is what was His will, the understanding of that separation and the truths that went with it. And on several other days of that week, the word divided is used. May I suggest then God wants us to make proper division, to make proper separation, and to make proper acknowledgement of what is involved in that division. But certainly, there are some occasions when division is bad, when it is not good. When brethren divide, when brethren, you see, are such that they are against one another, and they divide for reasons because they can't get along. That kind of division is a bad thing. And it's in fact condemned in the Bible, isn't it? In chapters such as Titus chapter 3, in chapters such as Proverbs 6, all of those things remind us that if we can't get along with people here, and we are dividing in that kind of way here, do we think that we'll be with them joyfully in heaven forever? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. No wonder we're admonished in those verses that close that slide to be minded of these. In Romans 16, 17, when there are those teaching false doctrine, we certainly strive and hope to admonish. But if they won't repent, Paul gave the commandment, you've got to mark them and divide from them. We can't tolerate false doctrine. We can't tolerate that which is not in harmony with the will of God. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, they in Corinth were challenged with this idea. Was Christ divided? There were those there who were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos, and I of Christ. Divisions in that way among brethren are not wholesome and they're not approved. No wonder in that 10th verse of that chapter, they and we alike are told to appreciate we must be of the same mind and the same judgment. And we must speak the same thing. Lovingly, we can do that. That puts us in harmony and joyfully so in light of the revelation of God. Finally, isn't it interesting to reflect on Luke 12, verses 13 and following? They're even connected to covetousness. There was an individual that came to Jesus and said, Command my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. This man, you see, had a great interest in monetary matters, and the Lord at that point began to teach a parable that has rung through the ages with a great truth for you and for me as well, to never ever let covetousness be the guiding rule of our life. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. To this point, we've looked at addition and subtraction, multiplication and division. And you may wonder if there's any other mathematics in the Bible. The answer is yes. But we will be brief as we close our lesson and look at one final consideration like this. You know, one of the key ideas when it comes to mathematics is the order, the regularity connected to the operations in those numbers. And isn't it fascinating how that the Bible lays a great emphasis upon that orderliness? And I listed it that very way. Sequence and order are fundamentally important to God. He wants our lives to be in order. 
Did he not tell Hezekiah one occasion, Set thy house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. It was time to get things in order. What about you and me tonight? Is our life, is our house in order? A few other verses on that same slide that point out the priority connected to what the lesson was for Hezekiah and what the lesson must be for us as well. One thing have I desired of the Lord. Matthew 6.33 goes on to say that you and I are admonished daily to appreciate the nature of that which the God of heaven demands, to seek first the kingdom of God. Orderliness. That must characterize us, does it? Two verses that close that are these. We know that we are told to make sure things are done decently and in order. Thus, it characterizes our worship. It characterizes our daily life. It characterizes even the circumstances concerning the church and what shall transpire when the Lord returns. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first. There's going to be an orderliness to the events of that day. May I suggest, in the language of mathematics, that orderliness is presented well. And it's presented in a way we understand. And it's presented in a way that reminds us that our God is a God who appreciates orderliness. This evening, as we close this lesson... That orderliness also is exemplified in a gospel plan of salvation. You've got to believe first, repent, and then confess, and then be baptized. We can't jumble that order around. Because didn't Jesus say, He that believeth and is baptized, you can't be baptized before you believe. In Acts 2.38, Peter, by inspiration, taught, Repent and be baptized. You can't be baptized before you repent. It makes no sense to confess that of which you're not convicted. There is an orderliness to what the Bible would demand of us as we strive to serve Him faithfully. This evening, if there's anyone here that is not a Christian, you need to take care of that tonight. If you have become a Christian, but as of this moment you're not faithful, there's some things you need to do. You've got to repent. 1 John 1 verses 8 and following. And as you do that, confessing those things, we'll be delighted to pray for you. Tonight you could leave this structure, and all could be well again with your soul. If we could be of assistance to you tonight, it'd be our joy, it'd be our privilege to invite and exhort you to come now and use some of our learning of mathematics tonight as a reminder of the truth. Don't you want to be added to the church? You never want to subtract from the Word of God. You want to be a part of that which multiplies to what is goodness in the sight of God, and you always want to rightly divide that which is His Word. And as you respect the orderliness of what God teaches, you and I can be well on our way to heaven. Tonight, if we could be of some assistance, we'd like to do that while together we stand and while we sing.